It's always the first few minutes when I sit down and I see somebody that I hadn't seen as I came in. I think, oh, there they are, there they are, there they are. People that I haven't seen for a while. And... Uh, So I'm glad to be back. So right away we'll uh, we'll uh, do some do something that's contemplative. I'm hoping that before we sit quietly with our eyes closed, that we'll sit uh, with eyes open and watch a video that um, I haven't seen yet. Uh, on the video, I saw this group perform in Russia last week, and I, you know how you get all excited about something and then you buy the video on the way out. So I hope it'll work, and I hope it'll work that we can see it. But in the meantime, I'm really glad to be back. Uh, not sure that I'm uh, uh, altogether back. My body is definitely here, but I'm beginning to believe those um, those reports that say for every hour on the clock that you have had to set, it takes a day to get it back. In which case, uh, I haven't been home for 10 days, and it's 10 hours from here to St. Petersburg, so that changes. But who is here today that has not been here on a Wednesday morning with me before? Wow, that's great. So if you are... Why don't you stand up first so we can everybody see who, and I'll see who. But you could actually say, you tell me and then turn around and let everybody see who's connected to that name. Hello. What's your name? My name is Chinwell. Chinwell? Yes. Wow. Uh, where do you live? Okay, that's great. So, welcome. Uh, turn around and see everybody so see you. I don't think that we've ever had somebody from Congo here before, but okay. Thank you. All right. My name is Monda, and I'm uh, from Tobago. I'm glad that you're here. Thank you. Well, welcome. And Melanie. <laughs> Now, I know Melanie, but you don't, so this is Melanie. I'm Melanie, and I'm from Belgium. Melanie's an old friend of mine, who some of you have met before, probably, because Melanie's a poet, and she reads in different venues in Marin County, so you may have met Melanie in that capacity before. My name is Lois, and I'm from... From... Maryland. Maryland. The state of Maryland. On the East Coast. No, no, I heard of Maryland. <laughs> no, I, it, it's only the seventh day that I'm home. That's all. <laughs> so that's wonderful. Why are you here? How are you here? Wow. This is a great place to house sit. Oh, okay, great, great. So now all I remember is Maryland, but I forgot your name. Lois. Okay, thanks. I'm 
Oh, yes, that's terrific. I'm glad that you're here. We have that, where is your whole sangha? There. There they are. You're part of, part of the Santa Rosa Sangha. No, okay. Okay, there they are. Okay, thank you. Jenny. For the rest of the group over here? You can say your name. Okay. Rose. I haven't seen Rose in a long time. Rose used to come on Wednesday mornings. Where's Joe? Joe. That's a, there's a famous story connected with Joe. Uh, Rose, I can't believe it. Uh, do, you remember, do you remember Rose, Nancy? She was there forever. Okay, let's move right on. What's your name? Oh, that's great. I'm very glad that you decided to come here. Well, and, and we looked different 20 years ago. We didn't have this spectacular place here. So I'm glad you're here, David. Welcome. I'm Jenny, and I'm from Minnesota. Also from Minnesota. Are you visiting family or just having a holiday? or? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Feel very welcome and please come again. Okay. Who else? I'm Julie. I just haven't seen my daughter, Sherry. And I'm happy to be in the new space and to be near you. I remember you very well, Julie, so I'm glad to see you again. Terrific. What's your name? Hi, I'm Benjamin. I've been at Wednesday mornings before, but never with you. That's terrific, and you're usually here with Donald then. Yeah, oh, I had one time with Donald and one time with another man whose name I forget. Tony. Tony. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Tony was here last month, well, two weeks ago, and... Um, okay, here we go. You look like your sister Barbara, so there you go. Welcome. I'm Charles from Santa Rosa, and I'm part of the Santa Rosa Sangha. That's terrific. That's terrific. Oh, that's a lovely place to live out there. So, Thank you for coming. Okay, now... You're all relatives of Julie. Huh? You're rel no, I'm Oh, okay. I'm glad you're here too. What's your name? I'm Lori, and I'm from Copeland, and this is my Well, I'm glad. I'm very glad you're here. It's a beautiful space, isn't it? Really, it's an amazing space. Anybody who didn't say their name, who hasn't been here before? 
I like to do that very much, even though the truth is, I forget the name right away. But first of all, that's a, it's, a, it's an artifact of being old, but also um, it's not the most important thing about somebody, their name. Their name could be Jane or Patricia. It doesn't matter so much as uh, maybe where they came from or why they came or something else. By and by, I start to remember people's names if they, you know, connected to them if they come. But I like to do that because somebody, especially, first of all, we've always done it. Second of all, I recently uh, got an email from a person I know that emails me from time to time about his uh, meditation practice, some ideas if he's come on some question. And he said, I'm so disappointed because I was supposed to be coming to San Francisco, some kind of a work next week, and I was really looking forward to coming to class. And that trip has been canceled, so I'm not going to come. And he said, and I knew, I knew this anyway. He said, I listened to the tapes of your class every week on um, Dharma Seed the next day. He said, and I so wanted to come because I wanted to say my name in that group. So, <laughs> so I love that. I think that's great. Did you find it particularly pleasant to say your name? <laughs> I'm glad. I, I love doing that. Oh, I, and again, because I'm looking out there and Ace is back there, and he would say if I forgot, now that you've learned the names of some people around, uh, just let's take a minute to say hello to the people next to you and you know, greet them, shake hands, something. It is. Oh, good. Good, thanks.
<laughs> no, I love it that that's such a desirable piece of our morning together. Imagine when people come on the end of a retreat, when people come on a retreat, say, for two weeks or four weeks, which happens in, in um, uh, February and March every year up in the retreat center, and people are in the same room day and night for a month and they don't talk to each other. And then on the last day, we do some exercises to get people prepared for the fact that they're going to now actually use mindful speech to connect with one another. And uh, we say, ready, set, go. Uh, you know, people have groups. We do it more smoothly than ready, set, go. We do some intermediary exercises. But once the people say hello to each other and get into groups and start talking about things, the thing that's so interesting for someone who's sitting up in front, as I have been in past years, is I've been looking at people for a month with a, that kind of retreat face where nothing happens and they don't, they maybe laugh sometimes in a Dharma talk or maybe smile, but most of the time. And all of a sudden you say you can connect with somebody with a speech and everybody not only connects, they didn't forget how to speak, but they become so lively in their face. You see, there's really, although I don't, I, I'm about to say something that I catch it halfway out, it's not true. It looks really like there's somebody in there. So leaving aside the fact that there's no one in there and it's empty of separate self, it certainly doesn't look like that at, that, at points like that. So we can talk about that at some point. Uh, I understand that my Russian stacking dolls are making their way around. I wanted to tell you that uh, before, I just got back from Russia last Thursday night. And before I left, uh, my daughter said to me, Mom, whatever you do, do not buy stacking dolls. We don't need any more. We don't need any more of those Russian stacking dolls. They're beautiful, those Mariushka dolls. But they don't need any more of those dolls. So I didn't buy those dolls. I bought, I bought these dolls, which are causing people to laugh as they come around, which I think will be a collector's item. How many people have not seen them yet? Oh, all right, they'll come around, they'll come around. So when you finish looking at it, reinstall them. There you go, and then pass it on. Oh, there was one more thing I wanted to say. I better say this because otherwise I'll forget at the end. This Sunday, I'm going to teach in here, yeah, in here, all from 9.30 to 4.30, with Grace Fisher. Grace Fisher, how many people do not know Grace Fisher? Grace Fisher is a young, well, not young, I mean, compared to me, young, uh, new teacher who's been teaching parenting classes uh, at Spirit Rock for a long time. And she's a lovely teacher, and she and I are teaching a day called Radical Integrity. So it mostly has to do with uh, the practice of radical integrity and what does that mean. It doesn't mean uh, ethics practice and not anything else, because you have to do everything else in order to do the ethics practice, but really seeing integrity as a source of happiness.
um, uh, I heard a news broadcast this morning where somebody commenting on yesterday's testimony says, nobody takes the Fifth Amendment who doesn't have something to hide. If they didn't have anything to hide, they wouldn't do that. So uh, I was thinking at the time about if you had radical integrity, you wouldn't need to ever, so that you could just say what was true. And one more thing I want to tell you so I don't forget it before. Uh, I want you to know, Rose, that an interchange that you and I had about 25 years ago comes up in my conversation quite regularly. Anybody knows the story with Rose? Remembers it? Well, somebody will remember. Uh, where, where is Joe? Joe will remember. There's Joe. You remember I told a story, tell a story frequently where I say, on one morning at Spirit Rock, at the Wednesday morning class, I was hurrying to class, because I was a little late, and here came Rose, who was also a little late. You remember this interlude? Rose, not even you. And I said, hello, Rose. She said, hello, Sylvia. I said, how are you? She said, fine. How are you? I said, fine. And then she said, wait a minute, you know, uh, uh, I really, you know, I do have some difficulties. Uh, my, I can't even remember what your difficulties were, Rose. I'm making these up. One of my children, da-da-da-da-da, my husband, da-da-da-da-da, some difficulty that one has in life. My sister or my brother, few difficulties. But then she finished saying the difficulties, and then she said, but I'm fine. So then I went in, and I taught. Now, I see Jashoda saying, yes, yes, yes. You, saw, you heard the story a million times, maybe. <laughs> I tell it because I, tell, I told the story then, uh, when I, just this morning, I said when I was coming in, I met Rose coming in, and I said X, and Rose said Y, X, Y, X, Y, X, Y. And Rose said, I have this and that and that worry in my life, but really, I'm fine. And I said that at the time, and then I said, so we, I'm suggesting to you, all of you people who are here that morning and this morning, that when we say to somebody, how are you, and they say, I'm fine, it means it doesn't mean that everything is going perfect in their life, because it's hardly ever going perfect in anybody's life. So the idea is to be able to say, I'm fine, and have the other person know that doesn't mean that there aren't any little glitches happening in your life that you wouldn't mind fixing up. You can have glitches here and there, but you yourself could be fine. So I summed up that morning with Rose there saying that, and somebody else, whose name was Gwen, said, when someone asks me, how are you, Gwen? I never say, I'm fine. She says, I always say, I couldn't be better. Because I couldn't. And it always takes people a little while to think about that. But we always couldn't be better. Because if we could, we would. Nobody purposely wants to suffer. And say, I couldn't be better. Even when I'm crappy to my husband and talk too peremptorily or don't like something that he did, or da, 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 da. I didn't do it in order to aggravate his day. I did it because I couldn't be better. If I could have been, if I would have been better, I would have thought it over and thought that's not so cool. Everybody's doing the best they can, you know, trying hard. If I do it with, if I'm, if I'm um, depressed, 
I couldn't be better. Wouldn't purposely stay depressed if I could be better than that. Don't you think? I think it's a brilliant thing I couldn't be better. It gives you license to be anything. Then, because he couldn't be better, nobody purposely suffers. As a matter of fact, the more years, decades go by, that it, look what you started, Rose. The more decades that go by that I think about couldn't be better, the more that particular awareness uh, helps me in times that somebody else is saying or doing something that is completely unacceptable to me and I'm about to get really... I think to myself, they couldn't do better. I hear a report, you can't believe what so-and-so said or did, that I could, I could understand it and actually feel that was a wrong thing. I'm sorry that that happened. What can I do to fix it up? But I don't have to be angry at them. They couldn't be better. If they could have, they would have. Does that make sense to you? Or does that... It's actually... It makes it no villains. Everybody is the victim of all of their experience. And everything that we teach, everything that we do is a reflection of that experience. If, if I... Te- what did what? you say, Mark? I said, I'm not so charitable. No, 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 but listen to this, because if I, sometimes I teach really well. Some days, I'm, some days I'm really alert, and all my, all my connections are working, and all my remembrances... I was teaching with Jack over the weekend, and I think he must know 10,000 quotes of famous people. because He carries piles of paper with him, but he rarely looks at the papers. And in a particular little discourse, he can say, as the, uh, Alice Walker said, as Nelson Mandela said, as David Winnicott said it, this one said, that one said he got a million quotes that he can remember right at his... And they all come in at the right time. If I, when I am doing that and I remember everything at the right time and it comes out at the right time, I think to myself, my whole committee showed up. That's great. <laughs> I got a committee somewhere of all the people who have ever been part of my life and they showed up. So that was very nice. It, you know, it saves me from going through the I did great my committee showed up. And similarly, when I'm not exactly on all my... I think to myself, the committee didn't show up. You know? Can't, you know, it's just what happens. At the end, I'm sorry they didn't show up, but it's not, a major, it's not a major problem. They just didn't show up. Sometimes they show up, sometimes they don't. If I sleep enough and eat right and uh, don't get aggravated and don't watch the news, more committees show up. And uh, I, I function better. Well, maybe we'll talk a little bit later about the, the benefit of being away from the news cycle for two and a half weeks, which is enormous, enormous, physiologically, mentally, which are not disconnected from each other. You feel in your body, safe. Nobody is suddenly going <laughs> to present me with a newspaper and tell me what happened or it's just I say well it's not the real world how much of the real world do we want to pay attention to at any given moment but anyway I thought first of all I thought we'd sit for a half hour as we always do and then talk afterwards but I also uh, have been impressed with 
uh, meditation techniques that involve doing something before you meditate that picks up the mind or the spirit, like uh, thinking of how uh, you did a kindness to somebody today. There's been a lot of research on people who do a kindness or do some good deed just before they sit down to meditate and they think about it a little bit. Or they bring to mind someone who did a kindness for them uh, just recently or this morning or last night. And you really just feel about the moment where they, you know, they gave you something or they brought you something. And you say, oh, that was lovely. And you feel that feeling and then you meditate. That the meditation is much more alert, not only more um, cheerful, but more alert, more bright. So I thought, I have not seen this video yet. When I was in Europe last week, um, I saw this group. So as we were leaving, they were phenomenal. Young people orchestra. Uh, young people, not children. Young people, young adults, playing Russian instruments. And uh, it was, I, we thought, fantastically good. And you know how when you leave a musical, they're selling the disc. So I thought I'd bring it along and we'd play it for two minutes or five minutes, depending on what you think. And I haven't seen it yet, so let's see it a little bit. Fabulous. So far, it's very good. <laughs> what? How can it warm up? It's an electrical machine. You plug it in, it's up. Oh, here we go. Okay, here we go. Let's see.
That's great, isn't it?
Well, one more. One more. All right, we'll bite one more. Maybe we should skip to the next one. This is actually Puccini, and it's not so Russian. <laughs> Can you do us the next one? Does it let you do that, Laura? <laughs> oh, look at this instrument. I was just going to say turn it off, but look at this instrument and watch her play. I don't know what this is. It's like a harp that sits on your lap. Yeah, let's see. One. One more, a little bit of this woman playing the harp.
Let's just sit now for 20 minutes and then see 
how the sitting is and talk about it afterwards. Probably most of you have had enough instructions for someone who hasn't had any. Just let the mind relax. Be in the place that it was when the music ended. Feel the mind, feel the mind in the body. Feel the breath, feel the breath in the body.
I'll ring the bell in just a minute. Um, and I'll invite you, before I ring the bell, to mention into the group space the names of um, folks you might be thinking about um, because they're important in your life and because they're at some important place in their life, sometimes for uh, really dire reasons, like they're sick or maybe sick or maybe dying. And sometimes because they're in important, great spaces in their life and you're wanting very much for that great space to continue well. I'm thinking a lot these days about uh, my friend Rachel, who is waiting to have an MRI tomorrow to see whether the chemotherapy for her brain cancer has been at all effective. And I hope that it is. And I'm also thinking at the same time of um, my grandson and uh, all of his family who are going with him to Ecuador in a few weeks so he can marry uh, Maria Teresa Elizalde, who is Ecuadorian. I'm hoping for them a long and happy and well life together. Who are you holding in your mind at this point?
for everyone who spoke out the name, all the names of the people who were spoken out for, and all the people who take care of them, and all the people who care about them, and all the people that we thought about and care about and didn't mention out loud, but that we hold in our hearts. May they and we and all beings, all human beings, so vulnerable in so many different ways, may they all be sustained. May this be a world where people take care of each other, communities take care of each other, countries take care of the people in them. May all beings be eased in their lives and held in love for whatever it is that they're facing. I'm glad you came here today, and I'm really sorry. I'm really glad that we're all here all the time so that people know it's safe to come here. I, I frequently think about how heroic human beings are. We have to do so much. We get up in the morning again and deal with what happened yesterday or ever. And that we do it. That's heroic. I'm just thinking about, I can't remember it, um, the line from the poem on kindness, the, the particular line that says, somehow we get up in the morning and put our shoes on and go to the post office and buy bread and just do the normal stuff, put our socks on and shoes and go to the post office and buy bread we keep doing our lives and that with so many things to deal with some things that we expect and some things that we don't expect and that mostly we can do it and when we can't people help us for a while 
until we get back to be able to do it again. I was thinking we have the choice, mostly, to do things. And when we can't do it, we wait. I've been thinking a lot about what to talk about today. The truth is that I just got home and I went back to teach the day after and I learned an important lesson about this is a machine that you can't run on empty. You actually have to go to a gas station every once in a while and put some, put some energy back in it. But in, but in fact, uh, one of the, I told somebody at the end of the last weekend where uh, my friend Jack Cornfield and I were teaching all weekend, and they said, uh, it's amazing that you taught all weekend and pretty cogent and all of that, uh, and you just flew, flew home. I said, well, the thing is, there's something about Dharma where you don't have to remember it. You know, you know it, you just say it. It's, it's, it's like, uh, it's part of you. You don't have to think about it so much. I was telling somebody that, um, like sometimes you think there's no choice. That the idea that we have a choice in life of what to do next. I was saying over the weekend that the most important step in the Eightfold Path. How many people here heard about the Eightfold Path? How many people didn't hear about it? How many people are fluent in the Eightfold Path? <laughs> there, Rose is fluent, good. Uh, the Eightfold Path is uh, a prescription that the Buddha gave for how to live with a mind, how to develop a mind that's um, malleable and resourceful and resilient, all like sounds like good things to have, a mind that's resilient and uh, resourceful. Uh, I think it is until it isn't, until you really have to stop and take a breath. It's a little bit like a runner that we run, 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 and then you can't run, so you walk for a while and you catch up with yourself. But one of those steps, one of those training steps that the Buddha gave for developing that kind of a mind is uh, called wise effort. And uh, uh, it's, I, in many ways, it, it, it's the least often talked about. People talk about wise concentration, wise mindfulness, wise action. Everybody kind of gets those words, wise action. That you, you, Act in a way that's wise, doesn't cause troubles or suffering for yourself or anybody else. But wise effort, what does that mean? And in a way, it means everything. So it's, there's a way in which it's probably the most important step in the whole path. It means, doesn't mean making a big effort. It means making an effort every time that the mind is faced with possibility. You come to a crossroad as you're riding your bike or riding your car, and you come to a, a, a cross in the road. And if it said on signs that this path over here is leading to suffering, 
And this path over here is leading to not suffering, leading to, leading to peace and contentment. If we could read the signs clearly, we'd always take that one. Nobody purposely turns down a road that says suffering. But sometimes we don't read very well. We're in a hurry, or we're dyslexic, or we misread the signals. Sometimes we can't make a good decision. Once upon a time, and I'm happy to say it's a long time ago, because I wouldn't say that same thing again. I was talking about getting over loss. I was specifically talking about when someone is lost to us, because they leave, or they leave permanently because they die. I said, even that, the grief of being in mourning, I said, even that, I said, after a while, it's, it's sad, it stays sad maybe forever, but the shock is over, because we've at least gotten over that part of it. I said, because everything, in the end, everything passes away. Everything that comes up as a feeling passes away. And somebody in the room said, I have a grief that I will pass away before this grief passes away. And I was very, very touched by that, because I could really get that, that we don't outlive. Even if I thought to myself, at least after a while, the shock of it will be gone. That business about there are, there, are, there are some things that the grief about them never goes away. Maybe it attenuates, maybe you have moments when you're not thinking about them. But it never goes away. Somebody, it was last year, I'm not sure, Brahmani or Jashoda will know this, because they teach with me in Garrison, every December with Sharon Salzberg. And Sharon, someone, it was a discussion where someone was asking us, it was a kind of a Q&A session, uh, what things have you really, really learned after all these years of practice? And I'm pretty sure that Sharon said, some things are really, what did she say? Some things are really grievous or some things, some things really, really hurt. Something like that. Do you remember that? I remembered it because I thought that's really interesting. Because sometimes, uh, in the in the in the moment of um, rhapsodizing about anything that you really have a lot of confidence in, I really have a lot of confidence in mindful awareness. And in mindful awareness when facing difficulties. I remember uh, that this was just what came to mind when I just said that. I, it, it's 30 years ago, 35 maybe, I phoned home on the night before I was coming home from a, my first mindfulness retreat, 40 years ago my first mindfulness retreat. I phoned home to tell my husband what plane I was coming on and that he should meet me. And he said, uh, listen, I have to tell you that, remember, your father wasn't feeling well before you left. My father was young. He was 65. Uh, 
And yes, I remember, he went to the doctor and he has such and such a blood cancer and the life expectancy from that is about two years and it doesn't have a treatment. And I remember feeling very, very, very sad. Really, I loved my father. He, he had moved out here to live nearby me. We were, I'm an only child, he was an only child. We were really very good friends. We used to run uh, 10K races together. He was in the best of health and now he was gonna die. And I remember in the moment that I heard that, I felt really devastated, sad. And then at the same time, I thought, well, this is what he and I are gonna have to do together now. And I looked back, I didn't in that moment say to myself, this was a weird thing to think and it wasn't so normal thinking from you, you who normally get distraught about things. But I thought about it afterwards, that that was a, a new thing. And if somebody had said to me at the end of that retreat, it was my first retreat, it was two weeks long, was really mostly confused and tired and sleepy and headachy most of the time. But if someone had said to me at the end, uh, how are you now after this retreat? Did you see any changes? I would say, nah, I don't know if I had any changes. Really, I think uh, my sense of my, my senses are a little cleaner. Uh, I can uh, smell the lunch from way down the other end of the hall. That's, I really can, you know, your senses do clear up. Uh, I remember Aldous Huxley saying, meditation cleanses the doors of perception. So I really can smell that it's lasagna for lunch because you can smell the oregano all the way down the hall. But then I thought to myself, that's not enough reason to go on a two-week meditation retreat, you know. <laughs> I can get to the place and see what's for lunch. And yeah, I can see the edges of the trees, are a little sharper and the greens are a little brighter. They were. But I would have said, nah, not too much changed. But really, something substantially changed in my mind because I heard this news which was very startling to me. And I just heard it. I mean, I heard it with sadness, but not with extra hullabaloo about it. Normally you hear that kind of a news and you kind of feel like you're gonna fall through the floor or like the floor opened up. Any of you who's gotten a phone call about a, an accident and a death knows that kind of a feeling where you can't believe that it happened. It doesn't, it doesn't go in. And I did get it that I did. I went out from that phone booth and I was going back to my room and people were now, it was late in the evening and people were sitting in the dining room and because it was the last night of the retreat, they had uh, said that, uh, the, that the non-talking part of the retreat was over and people could visit with each other. So I walked down the hall, I looked in the dining room and people were sitting and talking with each other, meeting other people who they hadn't met the whole time. And uh, they had made it a sort of party, a party at a meditation retreat is you have cupcakes. That's what a party is, and there's tea and cupcakes. So it's not usual party fare, but they're all having cupcakes and talking. And I thought to myself, you know, I think I'll go have a cupcake. And I, I remember going in, getting a cupcake, sitting down, eating a cupcake. I wasn't into visiting with people. I was sitting at the same table and listening. But I thought, this is really weird. I just found out my father's dying, and I'm sitting here having a cupcake. 
But, you know, the, why not if I'm hungry? We didn't used to eat in those days on retreats from noon one day until morning the next day. So I was actually pretty hungry. And I was sad. But and I thought, this is strange. This is a quality of mind that I'm not used to having. And it's called, um, in the text, it's called malleability of mind. And I, I remember writing about it and saying, you know, often you feel like you're going to fall through the floor. This was as if my mind land, fell, fell down, but it landed on a mattress or something. It bounced a little bit. Um, I was reading on my trip, I was reading a book called The Gentleman from Moscow. Who's read that? Is that not the most fabulous book that you ever read, Nancy? What would you say? Well, fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. What do you call it? It's not. It's not a. It's not. It's not a mystery. It's not a biography. It's not a romance. It's a story. It's a story, and it's totally, totally brilliant. In the end, you're reading it glued like you are to a page-turner thriller to see who, how is this going to ha- work out. And it's breathlessly wonderful. It's called The Gentleman from Moscow. The Gentleman from Moscow. And it's a story about a man in 19, uh, 1917, after the uh, Bolshevik Revolution, who is... Um, seen as an enemy of the state and not killed and not sent off to a uh, prison camp, but uh, sentenced to a life in prison, a house arrest for the rest of his life in the Metropole Hotel, which is across Red Square from uh, St. Isaac's Cathedral and the Bolshoi Theater. So, and it covers the next 40 years of his life 35, 40 years of his life. That's all I'll tell you about it. It's fantastic. I just finished listening to it on audio, and the narrator is... Somebody just told me, my daughter just finished listening, and she said the audio was great. I'll probably listen to it now the second time, because it's... I can just... When she said that to me, immediately... it always Immediately... There's a, the Buddha said that the mind in, con- in contact with pleasant experience or the thought of pleasant experience becomes grasping. My daughter said, I just finished listening to it on, vid- on audio and it was fantastic, the, his accent turning. So in the meantime, I'm thinking, how soon can I get home <laughs> and get on my telephone and get it on Audible? Um, because you need, and because I, I know how it turns out, but I'm not telling you how it turns out. But one of the things that I'll tell you, which is why I thought about it, uh, is that he he yeah, repairs to his room in the Metropole often over the course of these forty years, and reads from Montaigne's essays. So I happen to own a copy of a book called How to Live. Really, How to Live is a great title. Uh, How to Live is written by Sarah, Sarah Bakewell, but it's, or the life of, a life of Montaigne. And it's Sarah Bakewell talking about Montaigne in the essays and telling 
history of him and taking out quotes all over the place. And uh, I went and looked for it. Um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What irony. I wanted to read this to you because uh, at one point, uh, he's making the point that Sarah Bakewell says that one should be able to accept everything just as it is, willingly, without giving in to futile, futile longing to change it. Montaigne seemed to find this an easy trick. It came to him by nature. If I had to live over again, he wrote cheerfully, I would live as I have lived. Most people had to practice it, and that's why he wrote exercises for, you know, how do you do that? I, I would live my life as I have lived it. You say, oh, if I got to do it again, I would have done X or Y or sooner. Or, But we don't get to do it again. We only get to do it this time. And if I, to the degree that I know that, I am really uh, inspired to not mess up this time. Whatever it is, that this is what's happening. I've, I've told many of you this many times. My favorite... Um, quote, speaking of quotes, is my friend uh, Gil Fransdell saying to me that the definition of equanimity is the ability to say, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. Let's see what happens next. That means, it reminds me when I think that to myself, that there's going to be a next. Mostly when something happens, you think, ah, it's all well." Those of you who read the newspaper this morning uh, know that there are there seem to be proposals for drastically cutting programs that help the poor and the indigent and children and uh, if you hear you know that that lead was saying uh, meals on wheels abolishing uh, is she herself. I thought this morning, I read that about the Meals on Wheels, and I thought, one less missile built or dropped could probably fund the entire year of Meals on Wheels in the United States. Two, for sure, would the whole entire Meals on Wheels. It's gratuitously mean. It's gratuitously mean, this particular budget. So I read it this morning. I was not... I was not... Uh, buoyed up by it, but I was I really. I, I, one of the things that happened that I wanted to tell you in some way, I didn't know I was going to tell you right now, is on the time that we were away, we had no electronics. Everybody left all their electronics home. Uh, huh? Is it turkeys? What are they doing? Look at that. You know, they come and they peck because they think it's a turkey in here. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, this is their time. Uh, they've just finished it. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, this is the funniest thing. They come, oh, there he is. 
there's two there's two women who just went up and hopped up there you know that's why he's doing that and in this time of the year that's where they carry on like that the and they display themselves you know when they when he do out his whole feathers like that uh, and he, he's got other feathers on the side that go down like ailerons so they keep him from falling over and they look so wobbly you know there you go up at the retreat center there's lots of them and they screech and make terrible sounds and uh in the month-long retreat, I mentioned earlier there's a month-long retreat in February and in March. There are some people who stay for two months, by the way, on that two-month <laughs> retreat. So the, the uh, turkeys are carrying on and mating and fighting. And so people, people come, stand outside the meditation hall, people on retreat. They stand there for long periods of time watching the turkeys. For one thing, they're the only thing that's happening. Retreats could be a little boring. So it's like having a movie from National Geographic. And the other thing is um, it, it, you get very involved because I, I was walking down one, maybe last year, the year before, I was walking along in front of that meditation hall up there. So they've got a few guys with the tails out walking around. And I'm walking right by and squawking and fighting with each other. At one point, one of them grabbed the other by the throat and was pulling. And the manager came rushing out of the manager's office and said, you want me to get a hose and hose them down? I said, no, no, because then they just run in the woods and have the fight. I mean, we cannot be in charge of turkey life here. So. <laughs> Just leave them. They'll work it out. They've been working it out from before they were people, probably. So here's the turkeys fighting. And there's some tremendous fighting with squawking happening here. And I am walking by a hen turkey who's pecking away, pecking away quietly right over here. And these guys are fighting terribly over there. And the way I told the story afterwards, I said, so I'm going by this turkey hen and she looked up at me I don't know if she looked up at me in fact that she turned her head in my direction is more like I know that happened I said she looked up at me and I could see that she was saying can you believe these guys this is ridiculous take me home with you this is, you can't believe what's going to happen when they work it out between them help <laughs> Now, I don't know what she was actually saying, but but you can see how the mind fills in the the the, the writing underneath. Help! Now they're great. They usually come here and they and they peck on the door because they think it's another turkey to fight with in here. But I'm very interested in this uh, in that in the stance of Montaigne because in that book, which I hope you'll read, that uh, gentleman from Moscow. Somehow it's unbelievable, unbelievable. When you finish it, you think, how did he do that? How did he do that? That's so amazing. Anyway. He accepted what is... Um, I, I'm just saying that the other thing that I had uh, underlined is that Nietzsche... Uh, philosopher, 
called Montaigne, this freest and mightiest of souls, and added, that such a man wrote has truly augmented the joy of living on this earth. That Montaigne apparently managed the trick of living as Nietzsche longed to do, without petty resentments or regrets, embracing everything that happened without the desire to change it. His remark, casually, if I had to live over again, I would live as I have lived, embodied everything Nietzsche spent his life trying to attain. I I underlined this and I wrote a... uh, um, a note to myself under it that uh, we had. I had a friend forty years, at least forty years ago. He died. Maybe he was a young man. He was a psychiatrist in East Bay, and he died in his thirties, leaving a wife and two children and a successful career, and a garage full of. Uh, canoes and kayaks because that's what he liked to do and he died of um, breast cancer which is an extraordinary thing for men to get he didn't think that they could get it and he knew he was dying and he wrote a letter that, with instructions to his wife that when he was dead that she should send that letter to this list of people so all of his friends got them and in it he talked about he certainly um Let me make sure I say it right. Wait. Wait, wait. Uh, Wait a minute. Uh, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. I thought to myself, you know, I, he had a wife, he had children. I'm sure he had momentary annoyances with both of the above. You know, everybody has momentary annoyances. But the whole stuff of his life, overall, he didn't live thinking, I wanted other. This was great, this was great. I thought to myself at the time, I wrote about it, I called him, in a actually it's this book which I brought today, in which Rose is in that book also. I forgot. I brought it for some other reason today, Rose. But I, I called him the first patriarch of Berkeley because there's a there's a very important spiritual book called the um, of, of writings of the faith verses of the third Zen patriarch. And I call this man the first patriarch of Berkeley. He lived in Berkeley, and that was a very wise thing for him to say. I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. That's the same thing as Montaigne says. Everything you accept it, don't have a problem with it. I remember I was talking to somebody on the phone early this morning. I I said that, uh, may I feel safe and may I feel happy as two things that people say as a way of calming their mind. May I feel happy doesn't mean may I feel um, delighted that this is happening. May I feel able to say, let me think what a good way to say it would be. Uh, Wait a minute. 
uh, not this works for me. I'm not having a problem with that. That's a, it's been a recent, it's, I think it's an addition. I have no problems with that. People are saying, okay, I have no problem with that. How can I make my life so that I'm not having a problem with it? doesn't mean I love it, that it's happening. But having a problem with it is what's the creator of suffering, really. What turns life into suffering is having a problem with it. And the main problem is thinking, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. It's unfair. How many people ever had a child who said, that's not fair? (laughs) Whatever it is, that's not fair. We get an idea that it's supposed to be fair somehow. That's what we teach people with their siblings. You have to share, it's fair to share. Now is my time. It's fair, fair, share, share, all that stuff. And then they go to school and the teacher is not nice to them or likes somebody else better. And said, but I know Miss Jones doesn't like, like so-and-so better than me. That's not fair. And you say, you know what? It isn't fair, but it's what's happening. So we, we lead them up a garden path which turn out fair, but it doesn't. But to be able to say, I'm not having a problem with it, that's really the answer of it. And he doesn't mean I like it. Making it into a problem. And so it's from thinking it should be other. It can't be other. Whatever it is, whatever it is, uh, think of something. What could I be having a problem? Uh, oh, let's think. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm not having a problem with it because I already wrote a response to a couple of places that I write to. Uh, I, it's about making it into a problem. It's about uh, avoiding things like, I don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. Most of those embittered response uh, are um, indignation. I was going to say that uh, one of the things that I think contributed to my pleasure in being away for those weeks, is without the, oh, I started to say we didn't have any apparatus with us, no equipment, no electronics. No phone calls, no emails, no uh, no nothing. We were first of all out on rivers in in uh, Russia, but I because I really wanted to be on holiday. I couldn't take care of anything. I left the appropriate people in charge and appropriate people to contact if anybody needed anything, and just took two weeks, a little bit more. This is two of us just talking to each other, and I actually noticed after three or four days that my mind felt better. It just did. And that my body felt better, that, that I'm carrying a certain amount of in my body. You know when, uh, when you see a cartoon character who uh, suddenly gets frightened about something and says, eek, and their hair stands on end, and they, you know, ah. A-A-R-G-H-H is what it usually says, ah. So that... Uh, I think we live under that, especially if we check the television and listen to the news and read the papers and talk to your friends. Ah, how can this be happening? It is happening. It is happening. What can I do now is a much more empowering answer. It doesn't make me feel so uh, defenseless. Okay? What can I do now? Let's see what happens next. What can I do next now? to make that next arrive. 
So I noticed that, and my husband noticed it as well. Uh, we read books. We didn't. Uh, we we read books that were exciting and interesting. We learned a little Russian. I learned a lot of Russian history, because they had. Uh, I was on a tour boat from St. Petersburg to Moscow, and some very skilled and knowledgeable historian guides talked about Russian history. How do you know a lot of Russian history? I've, I'm, you know a lot of Russian history. That's good. You know, I I grew up in the era when the Soviet with Soviet things were like the evil empire, and I don't think that I, either that implanted itself as my base level understanding, or I never I didn't really update my data very well. You know that you know those little loops that come if on your television screen if if you have to upload some more data before you can see it needed to upload a lot of data. I remember there was some uh, uh, cartoon characters named Boris and Natasha. Do you remember that? What was what, what were they? Rocky and Bullwinkle, that's it. So that's got to be 40 years ago, Rocky and Bullwinkle. As it is 40 years ago, because, huh? 55, 60 years 50, 60, maybe I was watching with Mike when he was born, because uh, uh, the guide said one day in one sentence, this is, by the way, the Dharma that I thought about this, which is why I decided to tell you about it, I had it in my plan for this morning, um, was the guide uh, in one morning in one talk said uh, so in nineteen uh, uh, ninety there was a, a uh, another uh, change and uh, Khrushchev was replaced by uh, no after Khrushchev there was Andropov and somebody else anyway Mr Yeltsin Mr Gorbachev. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev was in office, and he announced uh, perestroika, and uh, the first part of which it means restructuring, and the first thing he said was communism didn't work, so we're going to have it different now, and we'll start capitalism, which happened, boom, like overnight. It's so interesting when you, uh, when you come out in the... Uh, uh, you walk through the Moscow airports, it's full of McDonald's and... Uh, some other kinds of things that you recognize as well-known Western brands. McDonald's is all over St. Petersburg or Moscow. I'm not saying this is a great thing, but it's there. You go in a shopping mall, or the best shopping malls, and they've got Gucci and uh, uh, all kinds of brands. I can't even think of them because I don't normally buy those brands, but fancy brands of stuff and it looks completely like a modern city and everybody behaves like a modern city and capitalism and gulags and hiddenness are in the past they have political parties they have elections uh and i didn't seem to notice that from 50 years ago till now i think i think that uh because there's always the the uh, intention to keep up strain and make other people the enemy of the United States for one reason or another. Maybe the government didn't feel it necessary to change the public perception. But uh, the people that we met, for instance, who work on the boat, many of them 
are people in their uh, in their late teens or early twenties who have just finished secondary school in somewhere in Siberia, and this is their first job learning hotel management that kind of thing. And they were born after perestroika. They were born after the borders were more or less open. They were born after you didn't have to worry about who was looking at you or seeing where you went or who you talked to. Uh, lots of people that we talked to about uh, what do you think about the government? It used to be that you had people following you around so you couldn't ask how is it with the government. But we were in shops and we talked about being Americans, so they were interested in that. I said, how is, it, how is the politics in Russia now? They said, oh, it's fine. They said, the only thing is it's pretty corrupt. I said, well, what do you mean corrupt? They said, well, the people who are in charge give the best jobs to the people that they know. And if, if you know somebody, you can get a job and uh, by, by bribery. I don't know any country where that's not true, where the people who get, where the people who get, I mean, we just have to look at our newly appointed cabinet and see who appoint, who, who bribed themselves into that position. I hope I said that in a cheerful way. It didn't sound like, <laughs> it didn't sound like grousing about it. But uh, here's a whole generation of young people who don't think of the United States as the evil menace and don't think of their country as an evil menace. They've been, the guides have traveled and gone to school in all kinds of country, uh, countries across Europe. You can get out, you can get back in. So I thought uh, about to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. I was going to bring that, I, two days ago I had that as the theme for today, so I got up to the theme at 10 minutes to 12. But I really thought, you know, this is what I thought about that, and you can tell me what you think. I thought there are a few things that I have known, over, learned over the last, 40 years of Dharma study that are phrases that people say over and over again, to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. The great way is not difficult for those who are uh, uh, for those who have no preferences. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. I was thinking there's probably less than 100, maybe 50, maybe 40, 30 lines that I have learned that are true, I'm happy to say that I learned them, which I keep on learning better. What wasn't so important to me, which was what was more important to me than discovering that Russia is an up-to-date place with all kinds of modern type stuff, is discovering that I didn't know that I didn't know that before. And I didn't know that my mind was not still being tainted by negative feelings about gulags and what went on. Russians have bad feelings about the gulags and went on. They have terrible feelings about Stalin and what went on. And they talk about it. And it's part of the lectures on this tour book. And here are these young people who have finished uh, school and somewhere all over Siberia who are learning to work in the hotel trade cheerful and uh, thoughtful and uh, able to speak out for themselves. It was really a pleasure to, to, to see that. I thought maybe at some point I'd make a list of the things that people have as Dharma quotes, uh, like 
to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions or the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences or tell me another line that um, that you can think of yeah it isn't what I wanted but it's what I got yes that's a that's coming in the category of Bill Cohen who said I would have wanted more but I never wanted other um I couldn't be better. What does that mean? I remember saying so many times, when the mind is relaxed and alert, uh, our own goodness is uh, self-revealing. And then I I think that's true, by the way. I, I go through periods of time, the last one was probably two months ago, when I thought, well... I shouldn't be saying that as a blanket statement because there are so many people doing terrible things in the world these days. It's hard to believe that the mind... But if you really get it, if the mind is relaxed and alert, then warm feelings come out. You know what? I I think there would be a way to say, even in the people that we think about who we have the most feelings about, maybe if their minds were relaxed and alert, They'd be that way. You know where we had that feeling we kept saying to each other? We'd be in a place like a park in the middle of uh, Moscow walking around. And uh, in the middle of the park is a pond. And around the park, a pond, you tell me what's around the pond, what's going on around the pond. There are ducks in the pond. Children are feeding the ducks. And we looked at that and we said, you know, at this moment, all over the world, wherever people are not fighting, and wherever they ate breakfast and have enough in their stomachs, and, where the, and, the, the, and they have enough in their cupboards to have dinner tonight, and there's a body of water, and they're not physically sick, people are standing around feeding the ducks with their children. It's not a an impulse that only arises in certain people. Certain, I think about that all the time. I think so, so we could even think about it now. Think of the people who are... You help me with an example. Think of the people who are feeding the ducks somewhere. Think of the people who are singing happy birthday at this very moment all around the world. Thinking of the people who... What? Babies. Thinking of people who had a baby a minute ago. And it came out good. What else? What's else a thing that people do? Susan. I just thought of something else when I was watching this in my Listen to music, not news. By the way, wasn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? I thought about that. It was wonderful for a couple of reasons. First of all, the music was beautiful to me. But I also thought... How extraordinary. These people all look to me like they're between 20 and 35. They're young, aren't they? They're all young. And here are the, the, the instrument that those men are playing are balalaikas. And right, not so evident in the, in the um, film, but evident because he introduced himself with his instrument and played it a little bit. Standing behind them, 
is a man with a, like a mondo huge balalaika like this. It's like a double bass balalaika. You know how you see a violin and a viola and a cello and a double bass. So here are all these guys with balalaikas and in the back, the guy's got a balalaika like that that stands on a, on a pole and he's playing that. And I think to myself, somewhere or another, at some point, each of these players in different places somehow got up one morning and said, I feel like playing the balalaika. <laughs> or I feel like playing that other one that I don't even know the name of that's got that big bowl behind it. And uh, I, I, one of my grandsons got up one morning when he was about 10 or 11, said, I feel like playing bagpipes. And he played bagpipes for 10 years. He's still playing, actually. But who gets up in the morning and says, you know, balalaika is not an orchestral instrument in the West these days. So I, th I find that in the category of stay amazed. Somewhere, each of these people got up and said, I feel like playing uh, a Russian uh, traditional instrument and must have put in a million hours of practice. And I love to watch something that's happening because a million hours of practice have. I think one of the reasons that I like to go to the symphony as much as I do, or I like to watch opera as much as I do, if I watch an opera and there's a hundred people on stage and a hundred people in the orchestra pit, or fifty, you think, how many hours of uh, intention and practice and practice and practice and practice did each of these people do to perfect their art and get to be playing in a national organization like the San Francisco Symphony or anything else or, or get to be dancing and do those pirouettes or do this. Somebody had to put in hours and hours and hours of practice to do that and their parents had to be there to support them or somebody did and the numbers of things that could have happened to get in the way of that. What did I hear the other day? Somebody had a, uh, an accident that, um, uh, that really, uh, in a car, I think, that severely injured a hand. Somebody who uses that hand for, uh, for their work. I'm not even sure in this minute it was a musician or someone. Anyway. It's a terrible thing, whatever you are. But the amount of things that had to work right for a performance to happen uh, is amazing. And that's, so really, Susan is the uh, beginning person of Stay Amazed. But one of the things that I've been really, really thinking about, apropos these are difficult times, and all times are difficult times, even if we were in the middle of a more settled and clear government or whatever, even if the middle... In, in our lives, people get sick, people die, people get disappointments. Um, uh, some sort of virtuosos have accidents with their hand. Accidents happen. To be able to have a, a, an open-hearted feeling about life. Years ago, those of us who have known each other for a long time, remember I used to bring along or talk about a book on a practice called transactional analysis, which is not so, it's sort of faded from popularity. And uh, 
it uh, had on the cover of the book the picture of a small child standing at the sh- shore of an ocean and the, the camera is behind this child looking out at the ocean. So you can't see what sex the child is, although I'm sure she's a girl. Uh, I'm sure she's a girl, but she might have been a boy. But anyway, here she is looking at the ocean and she's standing like this. There's nothing in the picture except this child standing at the ocean and looking like this. And I thought, ah, that would be a way to live a life, you know, if you could. Say, here I am, life. Why don't you come and give me a chance to see what you're about. And uh, I'll try to stay here to meet you. That would be great if you could do that. And so many things influence that. If I would make a list of them, oops, I can't make a list because it's 12, so now we have to unlist. But I'm thinking about so many things have to, have to do with this, like how healthy was your mother, whether your birth had to do, uh, had happened in Pittsburgh or in... Uh, West Marin, where the the air is different, whether this or that, or the your school district, your birth order, your this, your that, the ability of somebody to say this child has a good voice, or maybe they have musical talent, a million things depend on whether or not your being survives and thrives. So it's all amazing how it works. And you know you can. And one of the things we'll start there next week, because I think to myself we have to stay a little bit amazed so that our minds don't completely collapse in the front of whatever's going on in our lives. The ability to look at the the turkeys and laugh, you know, that really is a pick me upper. On the other hand, we can't stay there because our life meantime happens. And people live and die and get born and struggle. And we care about them if they're people that we know. And we can't not care about them, which is a good thing. I mean, people who don't care, we don't want to have that. That's not what we want. I don't want to be a kind of a person who would be able to say, well, everything that arises passes away. That's not, that's, not a, that's not how I am. Anyway, we get to be with each other next week, and I am very glad to be back. I'm very glad that you came if you haven't been here in a while, or if you haven't been here ever, and I hope that you will come again, because someone is always here. By the way, oh, maybe come on Sunday, da-da-da, 9.30 to 4.30. But the other thing is Tony was here, and uh, Heidi was here. Was that fun? Yes. They're both super, aren't they? Super, super. Good. I'll tell them you said. (laughs) May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.